So your kids are back in school now, Reed. We've started back virtually. Typically, the parents just go meet with the teacher, you know, and they say, we've gotten off to a great start this year. I'm so looking forward to having your kid. Well, this year, of course, it was via Zoom. And it was things like, if you could just make sure that the student is out of bed in the mornings and they could use their real names and real pictures because my 10-year-old daughter, apparently Steph Curry, that plays for the Golden State Warriors, is also in her class. I've heard of other things. Now, obviously, these are older kids, but like people doing their makeup. You know, one student was apparently like at the store. They're driving. Is it illegal to do a Zoom virtual class while driving? This is where the technology outpaces the law. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint episode 185 that seems like a substantial number it does 185 i mean it's no it's not 150 it's not 200 it's not even 175 but i don't know for whatever reason 185 it seems like a milestone for some reason but i don't think we'll ever do another episode 185 again that's true so it is a milestone that of course is chris boyer i'm reed smith this is Touchpoint, the podcast certainly we appreciate you logging in maybe this is your first time hopefully this is your 185th time. If it is your first time, welcome to Touchpoint. Touchpoint.health is the website. So if you want to know more about this show, if you'd like to get the links to some of the articles that we talk about, or even just check out some of the other shows on the Touchpoint network, you can do that there. I would encourage you to go check it out. We've got a new show launching this week. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to tell you which one it is until later in the show, but would be interested in knowing uh, what other shows you listen to. And then also while you're there, you can sign up for the TPS report, which is our weekly email where we aggregate some news from around the industry, only about five or six stories. It's an easy read and that comes out every Monday morning. So you can sign up for that uh, there as well. So we're going to take a uh, quick pause and we'll be right back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So lately, Reed, if we've been paying attention to our healthcare news feeds, there's been a lot of articles published about the new Walmart health locations that are starting up across the country. 
Retail and consumerism certainly has, and we've talked a lot about consumerism over the previous weeks, certainly across the pandemic the last few months or so, on how that's evolved and it has changed. This particular scenario is is obviously retail. We think about the way that we consume healthcare. I think we'll see, and we've talked about this pre-pandemic, more of these folks getting into that game, if you will. But we've kind of moved past the interesting story, and it's uh, now on your corner. Later on in this episode, we're going to do a great interview with someone who's actually been quoted in a lot of these articles about Walmart Health, James Garner. It made us think when we were hearing all about this retail healthcare. We've been talking about consumerism. We've been talking now about retail healthcare. What are the differences between the two? And that's where this podcast today is coming from. We're going to be talking about the differences between those two concepts. Well, the first thing we're going to dive into so we can kind of get to the root of all of that is an actual Deloitte article. Some of their insights, if you will. Are consumers already living in the future of health is the name of the article. And so it's key trends in agency Uh, Virtual health, remote monitoring, and data sharing. This article is actually a summary of two surveys they did just recently. Deloitte did a 2020 survey on U.S. healthcare consumers, and they also did a follow-on study about a month and a half ago called the Healthcare Consumer Response to the COVID-19 Survey. This article kind of captures the findings they're seeing about the new healthcare consumer. What's interesting, though, Reed, is much like Every other definition of consumerism, and we've talked about it now for weeks, months, if not years, the definitions are kind of disparate and they're they're a little different. And I think that the concept of a healthcare consumer and healthcare consumerism is evolving. It is because our opportunity has evolved over the years. I mean, it's the reason it's the new model, because uh, again, we've got options and availability that historically we didn't have. I, mean, I can remember as a kid, obviously, talking on a phone in a car or not tethered to a wall, I should say, was not an option. Right, right. We have obviously new options and new availability. And so they talk about in here for years that the general definition was really based on three three things, access, choice, and experience. Access would be the different locations, scheduling virtual care. Is, choice is more around giving the opportunities for ratings, reviews, assessing quality, even billing, pricing. We've talked about that. And the last is around experience, which is service design. I mean, even wayfinding and valet parking and all that kind of good stuff. And so uh, what Deloitte really uh, kind of digs into is some of the findings in the COVID-related world and how that is impacting consumerism. So they have a couple of interesting findings, and let's go through them one by one. First, they said that consumers are becoming increasingly active and engaged in their healthcare. When they say that, they mean 51% of consumers, right? So I guess it's it's better that we're just over the 50% mark. Right. In our world, right, I guess we weren't that actively involved before, but they say 51% of consumers were very or extremely likely to actually tell their doctors when they disagree with them. And more than half of the seniors and boomers are now likely to become more vocal about their disagreement versus in the younger generation. They say 63% of seniors and 57% of boomers are more vocal about their disagreements potentially with their doctors. Gen Xers, by the way, uh, 50% and millennials and, and Gen Z are only 46%. I wonder if some of that is because, number one, the, the older population certainly is a bigger consumer. You know, they also have more experience in, you know, to pull from. The younger you are, theoretically, unless, again, unless it's some sort of a chronic 
uh, condition, you're, you're probably dealing with stuff for the first time. Another point, consumers are increasingly using technology and apps, they say, to measure and maintain their health. We've seen, obviously, the rise of this over the years, not so much the adoption, but the availability. But what they say is that 42% of U.S. consumers say that they use uh, tools or tools uh, to measure fitness and track health improvement goals. Maybe a little higher than I thought, but but still not out of the norm, right? When you talk about fitness specifically. I think the second point is is the one that's a little bit more differentiating. They say those in excellent health, 62% of them are doing that. And then those with difficult chronic diseases, that number rises up to 75%. It's like the very healthy populations and the very sick populations are moving more and more towards using apps and technology to measure and maintain their health on a regular basis. It's becoming part of their lives. You get a little OCD about some of that stuff, right? I mean, you use the Strava app when you run or cycle or something, or maybe you have a Peloton or you do the heart rate thing. It becomes a little bit of a competition. We've seen this with the rise of even CrossFit and some of those types of things over the years where people like those challenges. And so I think technology vendors specifically have gotten better about not just looking for adoption, but trying to make these things sticky and get people involved in them. Again, when you talk about fitness, I can see that that certainly being the case. And I think the 75% on the chronic illness, chronic disease side, it's just getting better. And so it's a useful utility for a lot of those folks. And that leads to another finding that they found from these two surveys is that consumers believe that these devices can actually help them change their behavior. 77% of those people that are tracking their health said it actually actively changes their behavior at least moderately. And I find that myself. I call back, I'm a Fitbit guy. Every hour on the hour, when I get reminded I need to make 250 steps, you better believe I get up out of my chair and I'm walking around to get those 250 steps. It's kind of modeled or shaped me to become more active. It is... Although I don't wear my Apple Watch as much because it kept telling me to stand up. Uh, <laughs> actually, I don't wear a watch at all anymore because it hits the edge of my laptop. So anyway, it's just a design flaw. Okay, so the next thing that they point out here is the pandemic's impact on behaviors and attitudes and how they vary by both race and uh, ethnicity. And they talk about as of May 2020, which, good gosh, that was 10 years ago, I think. It said that the death rate among Black Americans was 50.3 per 100,000 compared to 20.7 for those that are white, 22.9 for Latinos, 22.7 for Asian Americans. There's something from an impact standpoint there based on who you are and where you grew up. I think this is becoming sort of that untold story of the pandemic is that it's adversely impacting Black people as well as Hispanic people more adversely than others. And part of that is because of access to care. Part of it is the types of jobs that they hold, etc. There's a lot of factors that roll into it. But the point is, is that depending on your race or your ethnicity, your behaviors and attitudes will vary when it comes to this global health crisis and, in general, when it comes to consumption of care with or without a public health pandemic. That's something that we need to really keep track of is that consumerism isn't the same for all populations in the United States. Other findings are not that surprising. COVID is accelerating the adoption and use of virtual health channels. We've talked about that ad nauseum. 80% of consumers they tracked said they would have a second virtual care visit after the first. I think that aligns with some of the findings you found 
at Girard. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll probably talk more. We have just coming out with the findings of our second uh, survey that was uh, in the market right at the beginning of August. And so we'll cover that more in coming weeks, I'm sure. But yeah, absolutely. And then on the flip side, which is interesting too, is that consumers still want the benefits of in-person healthcare. 66% of respondents say that a doctor or nurse needs to be physically there to examine them. And 56% don't think that they get the same quality of care from a virtual visit. So it's interesting that the, the rise in virtual care use and the adoption is there, but also the sort of this rise of personal in-person healthcare is there as well. They also point out that after a slight decline in the willingness to share health data pre-COVID, consumers are now more comfortable with sharing it. I think that's probably due to this virtual environment. We've eased into some of this because of out of necessity. You know, they need to see a doctor or whatever it is. So people are becoming more comfortable with the convenience this is about sharing their data too. And I think that more people are now aware of contact tracing and the importance of that. Before, where they were kind of freaked out that maybe Google and Facebook had all their data, now they're a little bit more open as long as they're sharing it with the right source. And then the last point they say here is the adoption of apps and at-home self-diagnostic and genetic tests are accelerating. We have access to more. They're, they're more valuable. They're more convenient. Certainly, you know, we see stuff in like mass advertising now and, and those types of things. And so, you know, initially we were kind of interested in our family tree or our lineage, like where we came from, you know, I'm X percent, you know, German or whatever. Things have gotten from a utility standpoint, more useful and meaningful and things like that. So certainly as time goes with those genetic tests and whatnot, We'll continue to see that rise, I'm sure. In a nutshell, we briefly outlined what consumerism is in healthcare and some of the trends that we're seeing around consumerism. Now, let's reflect back onto that, this whole concept of retail healthcare. So we found an article from a research and insight firm called Gensler, and they created an article that was called Retail Health, Retail Medicine, and the New Healthcare Experience. So let's talk about what retail healthcare is. You walk in the doors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's the things we've talked about, like with Walmart, with CVS and Walgreens, the places we you know, traditionally have probably not gotten health care delivered to us. Now we are. That doesn't make it retail in and of itself necessarily. That's more of where it's being delivered. But it's the ability to, to walk in. We think of it like in the hospital healthcare world is like urgent care is probably the most common. It's primarily being driven by companies that have a retail mindset already. So Walmart, Target, CVS, they understand the retail consumer, and they're now making entrance into this space. And that's really one of the first elements of it, right, is that it's developed around that retail consumer. It's not all the business does. The business does retail, some of which is healthcare, versus we do healthcare, some of which is retail, potentially. So think about this as like access to basic healthcare services at a at a place where which is in your own neighborhood. On demand information, extended hours, convenient locations. You know, they what do they say about a CVS is within three minutes of everybody that lives in the United States? At least I heard that somewhere. I'm not sure if that can be uh, proven or what have you. <laughs> and they have things like walk-in appointments where you just show up and you can get your care. It's developed around the consumer versus the consumer having to adapt to the way we do things. Convenience and flexibility, I think, are two of the trends that are around that retail consumer. One of the stats they they quoted in this article, three organizations, CVS, Walgreens, and Target, 
operated 73% of all retail clinics, whereas hospitals and physician groups, including the Mayo Clinic, only account for about 11% in the marketplace right now. That's pretty crazy. It's not happenstance that this is happening now. It isn't. And why don't we do this? After the break, why don't we come back and talk about some of the trends that are happening and why it's happening now? And then we'll get into some of the differences between retail and consumerism and see if there's sort of a healthy conflict between the two after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so retail, retail medicine, retail health, again, not coincidence that it's happening now. And so they, they talk about that, again, through the rest of this, this study, this, this insights. But they talk about under the Affordable Care Act that health exchanges created more than 22 million health shoppers who have the ability to compare costs, right? And so that's a big piece of retail is being able to compare costs. We can't do that real well in hospitals in most cases because we opened that up under the ACA and health, you know, exercise changes and things like that. It allowed for kind of that shopability. There's another trend too that's impacting this, not only the shopability, but the shortage of primary care doctors make it harder for patients seeking treatment. Now, this was before the pandemic, and it's only being seen, it's being felt here now. Retail health clinics are designed in part to allow you to be seen by someone that may not be a doctor per se, but it's someone that can certainly help you, again, with some of the non-complex care, right? That sort of the everyday care that you need. Another interesting thing about the the PCP part, and I think it will, to your point, only get worse, is because when you're going through medical school, there's very few people that are like, hey, so what what role here makes the least amount of money and requires the same amount of time? Uh, I'd like to do that one. Yeah. (laughs) You know, no. I mean, people are signing up for a few of those specialties that provide a better quality of life, like radiology, pathology, anesthesiology. You know, you're not having to take call as much, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we will continue to see that shortage. One last piece that's really kind of addressing this need and why retail healthcare is exploding right now is around the inequitability of the health system. That's a tough word to say, inequitability. The healthcare industry has been proven to be systemically inequitable for certain people. We talked before the break about Blacks and Hispanics being impacted by this. Many people at the highest risk also do not have the regular access to care. Part of that is insurance coverage. Part of that is uh, there may be in a health desert, they may be away from like where good healthcare is being delivered. Retail healthcare is designed to package affordable healthcare solutions to these underserved populations. And we'll get into that a little bit more in depth in the interview a little bit later. But I think that's an important piece as we, we think about what retail healthcare is. 
They talk a little bit why design is important. Certainly from a retail standpoint, they're looking at it the way they do in, to sell things in other consumer-based environments, right? So, you know, it's got to be inviting. It's got to, you know, have multiple reasons to come in. It's got to have a way that brings the healthcare professionals and patients together in just a better delivery mechanism and then keep the cost down. That's one one thing we didn't talk about, right, is there's a big pressure here on keeping the cost down. And that's why they want to integrate, and this is interesting, physical and virtual environments. When we think about places like Walmart Health or CVS Health or what, what have you, is there's two elements to it. There's the physical in-person location and the ongoing connectivity through a virtual setting that really builds into this consumer centricity that we're looking at around retail healthcare. The National Association of Community Health Centers, they say that this whole concept around retail clinics has even FQHCs interested in evaluating this, you know, the federally qualified health centers. Mm -hmm. Again, they're serving very underserved populations. So, of course, they're looking at retail health care from a care and economic perspective as a model for them to embrace. The impact of this against hospitals specifically is going to be uh, telling over the next uh, few years, certainly. Let's shift a little bit and let's talk about the differences between being retail versus the consumerism piece that we talked about initially. That's really the interesting take here, right? Because we got the healthcare consumer and we're introducing now this model of retail healthcare. Does it jive? We found an article on Forbes called Retail in the 2020s, The Death of Consumerism. Ooh. Ooh, How about that? This is from February of this year. They don't talk about retail healthcare per se, but they bring up some interesting points in this article that I think we can apply them to healthcare. So let's go through this a little bit, Reed. Yeah, they talk about the new state, if you will, of the consumer is making retail pivot. Consumers are becoming more mindful and sensitive to the environmental footprint, they say. And that consumerism is highly vulnerable to that sensitivity. We know that, right? Even through the pandemic, we've heard that uh, consumers are being more loyal to brands that are serving the public good. They outline here six forces that are driving this conflict, so to speak, between retail and consumerism. So the first force, they say, is that retail might have to see a substantial shrinking of consumerism, in part because modern economies are built on specialization, and specialization is not possible without an efficient exchange of goods, which retailers enable. But retailers are going to find in the next decade that they can't build a profitable business off of a pure aggregation of large demand and distribution of goods. This is not healthcare related, but think of that kind of force that's impacting consumerism and retail right now. They're saying, if you're going to be a good retail organization, you either have to go big or you have to go specialized. That vastly makes our retail healthcare space seriously lopsided, if you think about it. It really does. The second one they mentioned here is that consumers want to keep the items down longer. Uh, But what it means is there's more opportunity to provide services in support of that longer life cycle. They say here retailers will no longer be able to avoid the internal technology transformation that will be required to shift from being a product retailer to an end-to-end life solutions provider. 
somebody just hit bingo, I think, in the end life <laughs> solutions provider. Services simply cannot be delivered without technology. People want things to last longer, which means they need the support along the way, not more stuff. And if you think about this in retail healthcare, we talked about Fitbits and Apple Watches before, right? We want to keep these things around for a long time. But I may change my healthcare provider before I change my Fitbit. Mm. And so where does my health data, health data portability comes into this as well. If you think about applying this this force into retail healthcare, suddenly you're faced with a challenge of my healthcare data shouldn't just live with CVS or Walmart or the local health system. It's got to be portable across all of these areas. It really does. Absolutely. So a third force, retailers who figure out how to deliver experiences will do so because they figured out how to transform their companies to be digital first in everything they do. Now what we're talking about is that one important aspect of experience is buying frictionlessly. We love that. We like friction hunters, remember? Friction hunters. That's right. One of our favorite TLC shows. But the problem is, is that retailers have been struggling to provide that frictionless experience. That's a big challenge here. If you want to embrace the modern consumer who wants to have omni-channel experiences, you're going to have to do that really well, or you may risk losing them. Friction hunters. Comes on right after naked and afraid, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So the fourth thing they mentioned here, omni-channel is still far from mature, but we can make significant progress in the next decade, they say, towards true omni-channel. Now, I'd be curious, decade relative to like now after coronavirus, maybe a little bit different. But they talk about if inventory isn't moving online and you have no way of exposing that inventory to other sources of demand, your only choice is to offer online-only promotion to help clear out that inventory that's stuck kind of in that channel. You know, I hadn't really thought much about that. Omnichannel would allow for you know that demand to come from a number of different sources, if you will. You're less stuck or kind of pigeonholed, I guess, with the one channel. Yeah, and now think about virtual health and in-person clinic visits. And the way I see a lot of organizations address that is they reserve a block of their time for telehealth visits. Mm-hmm. Well, what if suddenly you have a rush towards one channel over the other? What are you going to do? Do a flash sale on in-person visits? How do you normalize that over the long term? That's going to be something that we're going to have to face. The fifth force that's impacting the retailization of things is that in order to ditch channel-based thinking, many retailers are going to have to fundamentally rethink about how their companies are organized. As they say, there's been a lot of industry focus on whether there should be a chief customer experience officer. And then that begs that question, which we've begged before when we've talked about this, who reports to that person? Everybody? What would be their span of control? You know, when you're talking about a chief customer experience officer, isn't that just basically the CEO of your organization? I mean, realistically, yes. But that's going to be an interesting one to think about how you structure that going forward, because that even goes into a little bit into the uh, their sixth point here, the sixth force. They're talking here that the most aggressive retailers remodel their stores every five years, but most on the 10 year range, which you think, wow, you got to remodel every 10 years. But that means think about that, like that stores have not been remodeled since 2010. That's a long time ago. That was before virtual health. That was before your devices were smart enough, wayfinding, all of the things, the technologies that you and I talk about on the show all the time. 
It wasn't there 10 years ago. Think about health systems. I would say health systems don't redesign their their locations. Maybe they do some cosmetic redesign work, but they don't significantly redesign the customer flow through their organizations. Maybe once every 20 years, probably when they tear down a building and rebuild a new one is when they do it. Well, then that goes back to the the force uh, number five, talking about the chief, you know, customer experience officer. That's kind of that person's role to some degree, or that's, that'd be part of it, I guess. And so, like, how do you do that, that it's not a project that, you know, then you're done with? Because you're not really ever done with this, I guess. No, you aren't. Consumers change their opinions and their perceptions and they adopt technologies much faster. This is where the consumer is outpacing the organization. Because I can't imagine a chief patient experience officer coming in and saying, I'm sorry, our hospital wayfinding is horrible. We're just going to tear the building down and rebuild it to make it easier for patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're just we're going to close the store for the next two and a half months to remodel. Exactly. We have a temporary store where the Banana Republic used to be, right down the way. (laughs) With that, why don't we uh, now shift over to the interview? And the interview I did is with James Garner. James is a healthcare consultant, and he's been working uh, with a lot of organizations around this concept of retail healthcare. He's been brought up a lot in some national articles around Walmart Health and retail healthcare in general. We'll run his interview right after this break. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I am talking with someone that I've known for a number of years. And I'm surprised, James, you haven't been on the show yet. That's my uh, friend and also fellow consultant in the space, uh, James Gardner. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm so excited to be with you today. Well, I'm excited you're here today, too, and we're going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to your heart. But before we jump into that, James, as some people listening in may not know about you, um, would you mind sharing a little bit of your, your background? I'm a lifelong marketer. I uh, started my career years ago at Procter & Gamble, and then by way of uh, Northwestern University, I graduated with an MBA and joined McKinsey's retailing and consulting practice in Chicago. So I've got a lifelong interest in both retail, but also consumer marketing. And then Chris, our paths crossed years and years ago uh, when I fell into the healthcare space, serving healthcare marketers and helping them uh, enter the digital age. Now I find myself focused uh, almost exclusively on retail healthcare, which I find to be just a fabulously exciting area in the world of healthcare. And I'm helping health systems, physician groups, and others navigate uh, a lot of the changes and turmoil that they're facing. You use the term retail healthcare. Help us understand, maybe provide your definition of what retail healthcare is. Retail healthcare is part of a larger phenomena, which is changing where and how care is delivered to patients. And that could be telehealth, could be any other new models that we're starting to see emerge. All of them kind of have in common that they're non-traditional locations uh, where patients are seeking care from physicians and other clinicians. Now, retail healthcare, as the name suggests, is the delivery of care in a retail environment, which in practice, we're not talking Home Depot, we're not talking Bed Bath & Beyond. We're typically talking uh, Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, Target perhaps, all of whom uh, have roots uh, in pharmacy and have made the jump in different ways to the delivery of care, either adjacent to their storefronts or in many cases within their storefronts. 
I think about being here in Minneapolis, we have Target right in our own backyard and Target and CVS has this partnership. And I noticed over the years, they've been introducing these sort of like fast clinics or extended clinics attached to their pharmacy. Is that how this concept evolved? Did it come out of a pharmacy setting? Most of the entrants that we're talking about have strong roots in pharmacy. And they've used that as a jumping off point to build different types of care delivery models uh, within their stores. Most people are familiar with CVS's Minute Clinics, uh, which are probably the most advanced and widespread uh, retail health model. They're delivering what we would call convenience care or urgent care, which has a couple characteristics. One is that it's typically delivered uh, by a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant or another allied health professional, typically not a doctor. So that's an important distinction. They're also delivering what we would call episodic care, which might be a flu shot. Uh, it might be a nurse practitioner looking at a skin rash. But it's episodic in the sense that you may not go back to that specific CVS ever again or for another couple of years until you have a need. That's very different from what we call longitudinal care, which is care delivered over a long period of time with continuity, and oftentimes by a doctor. That type of care that you're describing sounds a little bit more traditional, where you have a primary care doctor, maybe a family medicine doctor, that you go to quite on a regular basis. Although, while I do have that relationship with a provider that's part of my network, I also have a relationship to a certain extent with CVSs and others, because that's where I pick up my pharmacy, that's where I also maybe get my flu shot occasionally, in that episodic nature that you're describing. You know, in my background with hospitals and health systems, oftentimes that nurse professional, the, the those are actually staffed by people within hospitals and health systems. Is that still the case? Absolutely. And what you're describing is a very common phenomenon, and it's all part of the disruption of primary care, which I think is what you were putting your finger on. Primary care, as you know, Chris, more than most, it's foundational to the healthcare system for a couple of reasons. Obviously, when it's done right, it's most often where preventative care is being delivered. It's also where you have a long-term relationship, ideally, with a doctor who knows you, knows your family's health, and can provide care that spans years and years and is focused really on keeping you well. That's different than the episodic care that I was describing. Unfortunately, primary care is in a world of disruption right now. Consumers more and more, especially younger consumers, are rejecting that lifelong relationship with a physician that perhaps older people grew up with. They are more often than not seeking episodic care, whether it's walk-in clinics or telehealth or even intelligent chatbots as a means of getting their care. So that's a phenomena that's consumer-driven. There's also a flip side uh, on the provider side because nationally there's an epidemic of communities uh, lacking primary care physicians in a reasonable number. So there's a national shortage of physicians entering the world of primary care and staying with it as their career of choice. So it's a crisis and one that retailers uh, are stepping into in many interesting ways. Sounds like there's a perfect storm of everything happening all at once in that this shortage, also the sort of the generational shifts that you mentioned are kind of driving this sort of renewed interest in retail healthcare. But certainly it isn't just that. I, I think about in, in the space of my own experiences with retail healthcare, there's a high level of convenience, even for me, and I'm not one of those younger generation. What are some of the other drivers that we're seeing that are leading to this fast adoption of retail healthcare. 
I think you put your finger on one of the most important, which is just convenience. Busy families, busy moms and dads, they don't have the luxury of taking an afternoon off work uh, or taking a child out of school to, quote unquote, see the doctor. It's much more of a convenience to drop into a CVS for an episodic need, get your flu shot, get the skin rash looked at, and be in and out literally within minutes in most cases. And at the same time, perhaps pick up some necessities along the way. So there's a convenience factor there. Layered on top of that, obviously CVS has incredible geographic coverage as do the other players. So you're likely within minutes of one of these clinics, whether it's CVS or Target or Walmart or what have you. So there's just a geographic story. And then there's even less tangible factors like abundant free parking at pretty much every retail storefront or extended hours so you can go in on a Sunday and see a nurse practitioner or going in in the evening. So there's a convenience factor on top of that that traditional healthcare providers struggle to match. Yeah, and what you're outlining, those factors, uh, accessibility, ease, convenience, those are some of the major tenets behind consumerism in healthcare, which health systems are facing, and they're trying to retool their complex health systems to address those Yet it seems like a, a very naturally sort of these retail locations, the CVSs, the Walmarts, they have those already built into their offering. Within the DNA of these organizations is a consumer centricity, uh, which has allowed them to thrive and survive in one of the most brutally competitive industries, which is mass market retailing. So they make it their business to understand consumers and really deliver patient journeys Uh, to use that buzzword, that are frictionless and extremely convenient, and in many cases, low cost. That's the other driver of consumerism and becoming one more and more relevant. So let's talk a little bit about the cost models behind this. When I think about entrance into the space of retail healthcare, CVSs, Walmarts, whoever, I think about the fact that they have very deep pockets in which they can actually do investments into these spaces. So tell me a little bit about how they're approaching the pricing models behind retail healthcare. Well, in my mind, Chris, affordability and accessibility are two sides of the same coin. We know there's a large segment of the population that, first of all, is uninsured, but there's an even larger segment that's underinsured. They may have high COBA payment plans or high deductible plans, essentially locking them out of the health system uh, for anything less than a catastrophic problem. So there's a world of people that are much more acutely price-sensitive then I think we generally realize, even if they have insurance, they're loath to use it because they're going to end up paying for a lot of it out of their pocket. So there's different pricing models. I think the one that's attracting the most buzz uh, in the world of retail healthcare is what Walmart is piloting in Northwest Georgia and Arkansas at their so-called Walmart health clinics, where they're not only delivering primary care, but they're also delivering adjacent health services, which is very interesting to imagine dentistry, vision, pharmacy, audiology, and even mental health alongside imaging and labs all under one roof. Really interesting physical model. But equally exciting for those who are following the space is the pricing that they're bringing to the market. It's really unlike anything you or I have ever seen. I'll give you an example. Um, Mental health counseling, which is desperately needed amongst the U.S. population. Uh, Walmart's pricing it at literally $1 a minute. So you can get a full hour with a mental health professional for anxiety or stress, substance abuse, uh, what have you, for $60, which 
I find incredibly disruptive. And we can certainly look to how that's going to draw in people that right now are not engaging with the health system at all because of affordability and accessibility constraints. A compelling offering to underserved populations. Uh, Again, as you mentioned before, in a very convenient space where there's free parking, this certainly seems like a very natural extension of how care should be delivered, so to speak, right, in in the future here of America. Yet saying that, I also wonder, that probably causes a lot of health systems a little bit of anxiety to think about that, because these are, these are disruptive elements in the marketplace, aren't they? So let me drill into a couple of the points you make, Chris. One, just in the spirit of you and I not being fanboys, it's not a slam dunk what Walmart's doing or what others are doing. What they're doing in Georgia and Arkansas, it's a pilot, and they're very clear about that. And there's a lot of questions, to be honest, about the viability of the business model because of the pricing in large part. It's so aggressive that there are many, myself included, who are looking for insights as to how that's going to be sustainable to pay for a professional, be it a doctor or a dentist, and keep them utilized at a level that makes economic sense for Walmart. So there's an open question uh, just around the business model itself. There's also a question just about consumers' willingness to seek care at some of these non-traditional locations. Walmart obviously uh, has its uh, supporters and its detractors, but I think we could all agree, no matter where we stand on that side of the fence, the notion of a large corporation being privy to our health information, it gives us pause and we'd want to think about how that's going to be protected and won't be turned into a marketing story. So all of those things are headwinds that Walmart's dealing with. These retail healthcare entrants, they have a very good understanding of you as a consumer. They have all of these data points that they've collected about you. I think about when I go into CVS and, you know, every time I use my point of sale with my credit card, they're tracking that and they're actually giving me offers through my email or what have you that are very customized and personalized to me. To a certain extent, I'm I'm, I'm okay with that because it's related to my uh, purchasing patterns. But do you think that they're going to potentially extend that to healthcare? Like they'll start to personalize based on my what I'm being seen for? I think if it's done, it's going to have to be done extremely carefully. The opportunity is huge, as you're describing. And perhaps we need only look to CVS as an indicator of what that future might look like. In the case of CVS, obviously they have a loyalty program. So when you're shopping in their drugstores, they've got complete visibility into your purchases, just at retail. They also own a large health insurer through the purchase of Aetna. They also own a large pharmacy benefit management company. And now they're delivering uh, urgent care. So they've got the possibility of an unprecedented 360-degree view of your health habits. And certainly the thought of cross-marketing based on those insights, it must be tempting But the ick factor, (laughs) to use that word, uh, is very high, very high. And I can imagine a backlash and certainly skittishness amongst consumers at the prospect of that information being misused or sold or inadvertently leaked. So they're going to have to tread very carefully. And that's not unique to CVS. Any player in this retail health space uh, is going to have to really step up their efforts to be above board with this information that they're now being privy to. 
That and they're going to have to shorten their uh, receipts because I don't want a twenty-foot-long receipt after I go to see the doctor. In other <laughs> locations, right? So true. But I think about this still. I, I, you know, when I started in healthcare, you know, over ten years ago now, we would often say in health in the health systems that primary care it's a loss leader. It really is not a revenue generator, but it's sort of like the entrance into our system. It's almost like a front door into our system, so to speak. Do you feel that sort of mentality is being cascaded into these retail spaces? Are they starting to see themselves as being potentially entrants into the many different health systems that are out there? Chris, I think there's a grave risk actually to a lot of health systems if they lose control of the primary care relationship, which is exactly what's in play here. Uh, When we look at the efforts of Walmart and when we look at the efforts of Walgreens, they are looking to usurp that traditional relationship that health systems have with patients, the longitudinal delivery of care. And they're looking to become the gatekeepers, both for your dental needs, but also your vision, your audiology, your mental health, and control over extended periods of time, the delivery of care to you and to your family. And if I was a health system, that would cause me a lot of heartburn uh, for a couple of reasons. One is just control of the relationship being lost. The second being what the strategy of these players will be vis-a-vis specialty referrals, which, as you know, are the bread and butter of a lot of health systems. And I'm referring to oncology, dermatology, orthopedics, and whatnot, where there's no sense that these retail players will ever deliver that type of care. We don't envision them operating hospitals or having specialists on staff in any large numbers. So they're going to be referring out patients uh, from their base in some way, shape, or form to health systems. No one knows today how exactly that's going to be done. There's, there's much speculation. And part of what I strategize with, with my clients is how to position yourself in those relationships such that you make yourself an easy referring partner for Walmart and others. But it's not a slam dunk. What you're describing is potentially everybody's even playing field. And maybe they might even start to be differentiated based on reimbursement levels, et cetera. You and I were talking about this prior to recording. We were mentioning that Walmart even has relationships with certain health systems because it's cheaper for delivery of that complex care. Do you think that those types of partnerships are also going to come into play here? Yes, that is something that's been speculated on. And let's just unpack that a little bit. We know with Walmart, for instance, uh, that they have close to 2 million employees in the country, well over a million of them receiving uh, private health insurance. So they're one of the largest purchasers of health insurance in the country, bar none. And they've thought long and hard about the most economical way to get quality care for their employees. And they've identified what they call centers of excellence. Geisinger in central Pennsylvania being an example of that, where they've realized that it's more economical in certain cases, to fly you to Danville for the treatment of serious conditions. And they've identified that based on both the quality of care, but also the pricing that they've negotiated with the system. So let's take that model, which is focused on Walmart employees, and speculate about what that might look like at a local level, where they're seeking to refer patients out into the community, perhaps for a hip replacement. Now, they could have negotiated arrangements, a quid pro quo, if you will, with the local system for hip replacements. That's one model. It could just be a haphazard uh, referral based on the physician's uh, likes and dislikes. I don't think that's going to be the case, but certainly it could happen. I think a more likely or more interesting scenario is a very calculated decision on Walmart's part based on an understanding of within that local community, 
who's delivering quality care most economically? And hence, how can we best serve the economic needs of our patient by referring them to somewhere where not only are they going to get great care, but they're going to get great value? Now, that sounds far-fetched, but I'm not the only one to speculate that that could be a model that Walmart pursues. Taken to its logical endpoint, that could be incredibly disruptive. In essence, Walmart's referrals are rewarding low-cost, high-quality providers and starving those who are not delivering great care or are not delivering it economically. When you take that to Walmart's scale with 3,600 super centers across the country, the implications on public health are almost mind-blowing. Well, I could see an upside, too. You mentioned public health. What we're describing is sort of the retailization of healthcare delivery, and I think that that's very disruptive to health systems. But the other upsides of this are the potential positive impacts of what they could do to shape public health, which are things that are traditionally not, you know, not top of mind. Well, maybe I, maybe that's not fair to say, but maybe not a high priority with healthcare systems. I think you're very right. And this is advice that I share with my clients quite often, that as they think about Walmart uh, conceivably entering their geography, first, they need to assess the extent of the threat. And they may realize, uh, for instance, as we concluded here in Boston, Walmart essentially does not have a footprint in the city. So if you were a health system in Metro Boston, Walmart's not going to be a problem in the short term. But then systems do also need to look at their base of patients, especially the primary care population. And they need to identify just how vulnerable they are. They're serving a large population of people with either no insurance or a population that's underinsured. They're going to have an issue because Walmart will peel off a large number of those patients. If, on the other hand, you're blessed with strong commercial health coverage in your population, Walmart's going to be less of a problem. It's very uh, situation by situation. If you do identify that there is going to be some head-to-head competition, that's when you need to broker some conversations with Walmart and figure out that referring puzzle Uh, because your primary care physicians will be exposed, but perhaps your specialty physicians will be less exposed. There's one other thing I want to address, something that's top of mind, particularly now that we're in this public health pandemic, which is the entrance of telemedicine, it's not lost on me that there is also sort of a retailization of virtual care as well. Absolutely. We talked earlier about just the disruption that's going on in general with the delivery of care. Telehealth is a great example of that. These retail health models are another example of that. Chatbots, uh, of which I know you're you're a fan, are another mode of delivering care. So there's a lot of um, experimentation and a lot of investment dollars going into pushing these models forward to see how much they can uh, claw away at traditional models. Claw away is an interesting turn of phrase that you just (laughs) used, but there's certainly going to be a bit of erosion in this space. So now let's turn to hospitals and health systems who they're listening in right now, and they may be a little bit concerned about this. When you work with hospitals and health systems, what are some of the things that you help, help them see or help them understand about this model that could potentially benefit them in the long run? So first and foremost, don't ignore Walmart and don't ignore others that are in the retail health space. You've got to be paying attention to them, uh, if only because of their disruptive capabilities. So that's um, message 101. Don't have your head in the sand. And of course, I realize there's a million and one priorities now, perhaps more than ever during a pandemic. And I know healthcare marketers are stressed and strained uh, to rebuild volumes and get their health systems back on track. But this is something that the strategy team and or the marketing team should have on their radar screen especially uh, if you're likely to face primary care disruption, which could be an existential threat for some uh, health systems or their physician groups. 
as I was saying, if you look at your geography and your catchment area, and you've realized that Walmart and others don't really have a strong presence, then this could be something that you just watch, uh, watch carefully and learn from other health systems. But if you do find yourself in a situation where Walmart has a very strong presence, and I'm looking, uh, for instance, to Jacksonville, Florida, where Walmart announced two weeks ago, uh, they'll be expanding in early 2021. So you look at Jacksonville and you realize it's blanketed with Walmart super centers. It's one of the strongest markets for Walmart. There's a threat there. <laughs> if I was a health system in Jacksonville, I'd then be looking at my patient population and really assessing how successful will Walmart be at peeling away uh, my existing patient base. And you may conclude uh, that you're primarily serving insured patients. You've got a great offering. You don't have issues of convenience or accessibility. And you may realize we're okay here. We can coexist with Walmart. But you may also realize, gosh, we're serving a, a large uninsured cash paying audience, or we've got a lot of people with high deductible plans who are seeing the health system infrequently and perhaps reluctantly. And Walmart's going to target those uh, patients very successfully, I would argue. And then if you do find yourself in a situation where you will be coexisting with Walmart, you need to figure out the referring strategy and figure out a way to collaborate with Walmart or others offering primary care. And make referrals easy. Make it as frictionless as possible for those primary care physicians or dentists or optometrists or other clinicians to steer business your way. And that's a conversation you ultimately need to have with the Walmart team in your market. I'm a student of retailing, and I've gone back and looked at Walmart's history in the grocery retailing business because they didn't always uh, have the strong presence that they enjoy today in grocery retailing. And it was in 1998, after some experimentation, that they opened their first super center, which is the monstrosities that we see today. We're under one roof, perhaps up to 120,000 square feet. They've got grocery and hard goods coexisting. There were many, many, many grocery retailers back in the late 90s that guaranteed that Walmart would stub its toe, given the difficulty of grocery retailing. And indeed, it's immensely complex to deliver perishable groceries at scale across the country. Fast forward 10 years from 1998 and that first opening, they'd leapfrogged every grocery retailer in the country and had topped the list of largest players. So it was a relentless effort based on constantly learning, constantly improving and honing that business model, and then scaling at an unbelievable pace. For almost a decade, they were opening 200 super centers a year, oftentimes three or four a week. It's an unbelievable uh, organization in their ability to learn, improve, and then scale. So that's uh, advice for every healthcare marketer to take note of that. You don't want to be the person who's reacting to Walmart entering your market suddenly, or Walgreens or others, because these are large organizations with unbelievable resources and an unbelievable appetite for growth and serving their customers. So pay attention and don't let them sneak up on you. Those are wise words, somewhat ominous, but also very wise for organizations to pay heed as to seeing what the activity is of retail healthcare. Well, if people want, that are listening in and want to hear a little bit more about you, what's a good way for them to find you online? Chris, let me just first say I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. If your listeners are interested in staying in touch with me, you can first of all find me on Twitter, where I share a lot of thoughts about retail health and these disruptive models. And you can find me there under at James A. Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. And follow along the hashtag, hash Walmart Health, 
uh, and or hash retail health. And you'll find a lot of articles and thoughts being shared. You can also find me on LinkedIn, search for James A. Gardner, and you'll find my profile. And I also use those same hashtags, so it's easy to follow the conversation. Chris, it'd be delightful to hear from some of your listeners and continue some of these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. We encourage them to seek you out. James, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoy the conversation. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right. Well, special thanks to uh, James for coming on the show. He's obviously been a longtime supporter and appreciate not only that support, but his insight and knowledge and willingness to uh, come on and chat for a little bit. Talking about conferences just a little bit, as you're listening to the, if you listen to this the day it comes out, you are right in the middle of uh, HMPS. Yeah, that's happening this week. Well, August 18th through August 20th, depending on when you listen to the show. Yeah. And then you've got a, uh, another conference coming up. It's the the Smash Conference. I mentioned this before. Post-acute care conference that, that's in October. I will be actually doing a, a two-hour workshop about developing a B2B2C approach. And that's on Monday, October 19th. Be sure to go out there and check out their website at SeniorCareSummits.com to sign up. You can also go ahead and find some information at hcic.net for the Healthcare Internet Conference, which happens in the fall every year. Uh, we also have links and a little bit of information in the weekly TPS report, our weekly newsletter that comes out. So you can find out more about that at touchpoint.health. What recommendation do you have today? Reed, I have a recommendation for a podcast that is brought to you by Serial. They already have a new podcast in association with the New York Times company, and it's called Nice White Parents. It's a five-part series about building a better school system and what gets in the way. And what's really interesting is it talks about the school system and how there are parents within a community that are very active and vocal about how to develop and shape their school systems. And yet this reporter, Chena Joff-Walt, looked into this and found a lot of inequality in education. And she saw that most reforms focused on why schools were failing. Very an interesting dynamic. There's only a couple episodes now out, but it's really fascinating to see how certain people, and in this case, it happens to be white parents, have had an inextricable influence on how schooling systems have been shaped across the United States. So it's an interesting one. Very interesting. I've made a note of that, wrote that down. So that uh, they always do, I mean, regardless of topic or subject matter, the production value and whatnot from uh, the folks at This American Life and Serial and all those are just pretty amazing. Good recommendation. I'm going to recommend an app. I think I've probably recommended this before. I don't remember, but there's a, a weather app called AccuWeather. And the reason I'm uh, recommending it now is because they've updated the app and it's uh, really great to be able to see. They've got a very interesting UI, the way they think about the next 60 minutes uh, at a time. So temperature and precipitation, things like that. You can also you know, look at your screen for you know, today, if you will. Uh, as well as hourly, daily. There's several uh, different radars that you can pull from. Anyway, it's, it's just really well done. It's really nice uh, the way the, the UI is set up and things like that. And so AccuWeather is free. I, there may be, I seem like there's probably a paid version uh, where you can get rid of some ads and things like that, but uh, I've never really found the need to, to do that. So you can use the free one for sure. So There's always a paid version. Always the paid version um, for sure. 
<laughs> this was, uh, was a good episode. It's very interesting. Hadn't really thought much about the differences or the, the kind of disruptive continuity between retail and consumerism. And so this has been a, a great conversation. Again, thanks to James for coming on the show. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to listen, whether that's streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or somewhere else. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.